Chapter 13 of The Cave in the Mountain by Edward Ellis In the Nick of Time Leaving his Mustang in charge of Fred, the Irishman turned to the right and followed the stream into the rocks. The course was so winding that he speedily disappeared from sight. The boy, who was compelled to sit still and await his return at perhaps the most dangerous portion of the road, felt anything but comfortable over the erratic proceeding of his friend. But fortunately, the latter had been gone but a short time, when he reappeared, hurrying forward as if somebody was at his heels. "'It's all right,' he remarked, as he sprang into the saddle, took up the reins, and started on. "'I think the Apaches are there, though I can't be certain.' but I found out what I wanted to learn. Then he explained that he followed up the stream to the place where it came from beneath the rocks which formed a part of the wall of the cave, where a curious fact attracted his attention. In its passage beneath the stone, the tunnel widened and flattened so that where it shot forth into the sunlight again, its width was some twenty feet, and its depth only a few inches. The appearance it presented was very much like that of the gates of a mill-pond when they have been slightly raised to allow a discharge of water beneath. Through the passageway thus afforded, no living person could have forced his way, and had Mickey O'Rooney attempted it, nothing in the world could have saved him from drowning. The Irishman himself realized it, and was thankful enough that he had refrained from making the desperate attempt. The two continued their sweeping gallop for several hours, during which they did not catch a glimpse of Indians, but they were alarmed by hearing the reports of guns at no great distance on the right. The firing was irregular, sometimes several shots being heard together, and then they were more of a dropping character. This showed that a fight of some kind was going on, but as to its precise nature they could only conjecture. It might be that a party of Comanches and Apaches or Kiowas or hunters were enjoying a hot time, but the two friends were glad to get out of the neighborhood as speedily as possible. At noon they enjoyed the satisfaction of knowing that they had made good and substantial progress on the way home. There was an abundance of grass and water, and when the sun was overhead they went into camp. "'I'm as hungry as a panther that has been fasting for a month,' said Mickey, as he dismounted, "'and I haven't got a mouthful of food left. "'There ain't any use of a chap starving to death to accommodate anybody else, "'and I don't mean to do the same.' Fred Munson's hunger was scarcely less than his, but the boy would have been willing to have undergone still more, rather than incur the risk that was now inevitable. But Mickey saw nothing to be gained by such a course, and contended that they should give their attention to the wants of their bodies before they were weakened by fasting and fatigue. Mickey promised not to be absent long, and then started in search of provender. Game was abundant in that part of the world, and he was confident that much time would not be required to bring down some toothsome dainty. He has an uncomfortable way of running off and leaving a fellow alone, muttered Fred, as he watched the vanishing figure of his friend. I haven't anything but my revolver and only two shots left in that, and it seems to me that this is about the worst place we could stop. The point where they camped was in the pass, which at that point widened considerably. The right wall curved far inward in a semicircular shape, the opposite remaining the same, 
the gorge looking as if an immense slice had been scooped out of its northern boundary. The rocks on every hand ranged from a dozen to a hundred feet in height, with numerous openings through which a horseman could easily pick his way. The tops were covered with vegetation, the greater portion of which was vigorous and dense. Fred found himself standing in an immense amphitheatre, as one can imagine how the gladiators of Rome stood in the Colosseum when an audience of over a hundred thousand were seated and looking down upon them. He could not but note the helpless situation a party of men would be in if caught where he was. "'If a company of United States cavalry should camp here, and the Indians opened on them from the rocks above, they would have to stand and be shot down one after another, or else run the gauntlet and be picked off in the same way.' The appearance of the ground showed that the spot was a favorite camping site of the Indians. Fred, for a time, suspected that it was the place where Lone Wolf and his band had spent the first night out from New Boston, but an examination showed that it did not correspond in many points. The remains of charred wood, of bleaching bones and ashes, proved that many a campfire had been kindled and in all probability every one of them had warmed the shins and toasted the food of the red cutthroats of that section. The two mustangs were tethered near one side of the space, where there was grass and water, and the lads set about it to select a proper place in which to build a campfire. There was no trouble in determining this, but when he started to gather wood he was surprised to discover that there was much less than he supposed. The former tenants of the place had cleared it up pretty thoroughly. "'There is plenty of wood over yonder,' he said to himself, looking in the direction taken by Mickey O'Rooney, "'and where there is so much growing, there must be some upon the ground. I'll go over and gather some, and have the fire all ready when he comes back.' It was quite a walk from where he stood to the side of the semicircular widening of the pass, and as he went over it he was surprised to find it greater than it appeared. When he picked his way between the rocks and began clambering among the trees and vegetation, he concluded that he was fully two hundred yards from where the mustangs were grazing. However, he did not allow himself to lose any time in speculation and wonderment, but set to work at once to gather wood with which to kindle a fire in readiness for the return of Mickey. There was enough around him to afford all he needed, and he was engaged in leisurely collecting an armful when he was startled by the rattling of the leaves behind him. The wood was dropped on the instant, and the alarmed lad wheeled about to face his new danger. Instead of two or three Indians, as he had anticipated, he saw an enormous grizzly bear about a dozen feet in the rear and coming directly toward him with very little doubt of his purpose. Fred had no thought of anything of this character, and for a time he was paralyzed with terror, unable to speak or stir. These precious seconds were improved by the huge animal, which continued lumbering heavily forward toward the boy. Bruin had his jaws apart and his red tongue lolling out, while a guttural grunt was occasionally heard, as if the beast was anticipating the crunching of the tender flesh and bones of the lad. Before the latter was within reach, however, he had recovered his usual activity, and with a bound and a yell of terror, Fred started in the direction of the clearing where he had left the mustangs, and where he intended to kindle the campfire. 
but the enormous bulky creature, although swinging along in his awkward fashion, still made good speed and gained so rapidly upon the boy that he almost abandoned hope of escape. At this critical moment Fred thought of his revolver, and he whipped it out in a twinkling. Whirling about he took quick aim and discharged both barrels almost in the face of the brute. Then, flinging the pistol against his leather nose, he turned back and continued his flight at the utmost bent of his speed. Both bullets struck the brute and wounded him, but not fatally, nor indeed enough to check his advance. The grizzly bear, as found in his native wilds, is killed with extreme difficulty, and the only thing that seemed to affect the monster in the present instance was the flash of the pistol in his eyes. He paused, and rearing on his hind legs, snorted, snuffed, and pawed at his nose as if the bullets were splinters which he was seeking to displace. Then with an angry growl he dropped on all fours and resumed his pursuit of the author of his confusion and hurts. The wounds incensed the brute, and he plunged along at a faster rate than before, gaining so rapidly that there could be no doubt as to the result. Being without any weapon at all, there seemed but one hope for Fred, and that was to reach his mustang in time to mount and avail himself of his speed. For a hundred feet or so he ran down a rapid slope, between the trees and rocks, until he reached the camping site where he had a run of a couple of hundred yards across a comparatively level plain to reach the point where his animal was awaiting him. In going down this wooded slope, the smaller size of the boy gave him considerable advantage, yet so well did the grizzly succeed that he reached the spot less than twenty feet in his rear, and heading directly for him, at once proceeded to decrease the distance still further. This placed the question of escape by superior speed upon the part of the lad as among the impossibilities, and it began to look very much as if his race were run. At this juncture, as if all the fates had combined against him, Fred, while glancing backward over his shoulder, stumbled and fell. He sprang up as hastily as possible, but the loss of ground was irreparable. As he looked back, he saw that the colossal beast was so close that it seemed that one sweep of his paw would smite the terrified fugitive from the face of the earth. It was a critical moment indeed, and the crack of the rifle from the wood which the pursuer and pursued had just left was not a breath of time too soon. Aimed by one who knew the vulnerable points of such a creature, and by someone whose skill was unsurpassed, the leaden messenger crashed its way through bone and muscle to the seat of life. The brute, which was ready to fall upon and devour the young fugitive, pitched heavily forward and rolled upon the ground in the throes of death. Fred did not realize his delivery until he had gone some distance further and looked back and saw the black mass motionless upon the ground. After some hesitation, he then turned and walked distrustfully back to where it lay. He found the beast stone dead, a rill of blood from beneath the foreleg showing where someone's bullet had done the business. The lad recalled the sound of the gun which had reached his ear. "'That was the best shot for me that Mickey ever made,' he muttered, looking around for his friend. But he was nowhere to be seen. "'Mickey must always have his fun,' added Fred, after failing to detect him. 
instead of coming out at once and letting me know how he came to do it he fires the lucky shot and then waits to see how i will act my gracious he is a bouncer this last remark was excited by the carcass which he kicked and which shook like a mountainous mass of jelly and as he passed around it he gained a fair idea of the immense proportions of the bear in whose grasp he would have been as helpless as in that of a royal bengal tiger Whew, but he came mighty close to me when i fell down i expected to feel his paws on me before i could get up in a few seconds more it would have been all up with me several minutes passed and nothing was seen of the irishman whereupon the lad concluded he might as well go back and gather the wood which would be needed at the campfire. "'I wonder if there's any more of them,' he muttered, as he began picking his way among the rocks. "'If there are, why, Mickey must look out for me.' He found the sticks, just as he had thrown them down, and he proceeded to regather them, keeping a careful watch for another dangerous visitor. All remained quiet, however, and making his way down the wooded slope into the open area, he looked back and found that he was still alone. So it continued until he returned to where the two mustangs were tethered. There he carefully adjusted the sticks and prepared everything, after which he began to feel some impatience at the non-appearance of his friend. "'He must see more fun in that kind of thing than I do. There's no telling what has become of those six Apaches we left down in the cave.' I feel sure that they've got above ground again. It won't take long for them to find their mustangs or some other horses, and they may be a mile away. And there may be other parties close by. Hello! Fred thought that he had no matches about his person, but he was making a sort of aimless hunt when he found a solitary lucifer at the bottom of his pocket. This he carefully struck against the rock behind him, and in a few minutes the campfire was started and burning merrily. As he sat down to wait, he looked toward the point where the Irishman had vanished from sight. There he was, bearing on his shoulders some choice sections of a young antelope he had shot, although Fred recalled that he had not heard the report of his gun, except when the grizzly was shot. As Mickey came along over the same path taken by the boy, he was forced to make a detour around the carcass of the bear. He paused to survey it, his whole manner betraying great astonishment, as if he had never beheld anything of the kind. He walked around the body several times, punched it with his foot, and finally, grasping his twenty pounds of meat in his right hand, approached the campfire. Here he at once began the preparations for broiling it. The antelope had been of goodly size, and he had cut out the most luscious portions so as to avoid carrying back any waste material. He had a great deal more than both could eat, it is true, but it was a commendable custom with the Irishman to lay in a stock against emergencies that were likely to arise. While thus employed, it would have been impossible for Mickey to hold his tongue. Begorra, but it was queer was the same, the way I came to catch this gentleman. I hunted him a little ways when he made a big jump, and I thought had got a long ways off. But when I came to follow him, I found he had cornered himself among the rocks, where there was no show of getting out except by coming back on me. The minute I showed myself, he made a rush for me arms, just as all the party gals in Tipperary used to do when I came along the street. 
an antelope can't do much but i don't care about their coming down on me in that style and so i pulled up and let drive he was right on me when i pulled the trigger and he made one big jump that carried him clear over my head and landed him stone dead on the other side it was a good shot but not as good as when you brought down the grizzly bear at my heels Mickey O'Rooney was particularly busy just then with his culinary operations, and he stared at the lad with an expression of comical amazement that made the young fellow laugh. "'Begorra, why don't you talk since?' added Mickey impatiently. "'I've heard Soot Simpson say that if you only put your shot in the right spot, you don't want but one of them to trip the biggest grizzly that ever navigated.' I was going to observe that you had been mighty lucky to send in your two pistol shots just where they settled the business, though I suppose the haythen was so close on you when you fired that you almost shoved the weapon into his carcass. I shot him, Mickey, before I fairly started to run, but he didn't mind it any more than if I spit in his face. It was your own shot that did the business. Me own shot, repeated Mickey, still staring with an astonished expression. I never fired any shot at the beast. I never saw him till a few minutes ago when I was coming this way. It was Fred Munson's turn to be astonished, and he asked in his amazed, wondering way, Who then fired the shot that killed him? I didn't. I thought you did the same, for it was not myself. The lad was more puzzled than ever. He saw that Mickey was in earnest and was telling him the truth, and each, in fact, understood that he had been under a misapprehension as to who had slain the grizzly bear. "'The beast was right on me,' continued Fred, "'and I didn't think there was any chance for me when I heard the crack of a rifle from the bushes and looking back saw that the bear was down on the ground making his last kick.' Mickey let the meat scorch while he stopped to scratch his head, as was his custom when he was in a mental fog. "'Begorra, but that is queer, as me mother used to observe when she found she had not been deceived by believing what we childer told her. "'There was somebody who was kind enough to knock over the grizzly at the most convenient season for ye, and then he doesn't choose to send over his card with his post-office address on. "'Who do you think it was, Mickey?' It must have been some red spalpeen that took pity on you. Who knows, but it was Lone Wolf himself. Both looked about them in a scared, inquiring way, but could see nothing of their unknown friend, or enemy, as the case might be. I tell you, Mickey, that it makes me feel as if we ought to get out of here. You're right. I will just swally some of this stuff, and then we'll light out. He tossed the lad a goodly-sized piece of meat, which, if anything, was overdone. Both ate more rapidly than was consistent with hygiene, their eyes continually wandering over the rocks and heights around them in quest of their seemingly ever-present enemies, the Apaches. It required but a few moments for them to complete their dinner. Mickey, in accordance with his custom, carefully folded up what was left, and taking a drink from the stream, which ran near at hand, they sprang upon the backs of their mustangs and headed westward in the direction of New Boston, provided such a settlement was still in existence by the grace of Lone Wolf, leader of the Apaches. "'No,' said Mickey, whose spirit seemed to rise when he found himself astride of his trusty mustang again. "'If we don't have any bad luck, we ought to be out of the mountains by dark. And after that, then a good long ride across the prairie and we'll be back again with the folks.' 
How glad I am that father isn't here, that he stayed at Fort Aubrey, for when he comes along in a few weeks he won't know anything about this trouble till I tell him the whole story myself, and then it will be too late for him to worry. Yes, I'm glad it's so, for it seems if I had a spalpain of a son off with Lone Wolf among the mountains I'd feel as bad as if he had gone in swimming where the water was over his head. And then it'll be so nice to sit down and tell the old gentleman about it and have him lambast you cause you wasn't more respectful to Lone Wolf. All them things are cheerful and make the occasion very pleasant. Bagara, I should like to know where that old redskin is, for Soot Simpson tells me that he is the greatest redskin down in this part of the world. He's the spalpeen that robbed a government train and made himself a big blanket out of the new greenbacks that he stole. Soot says that there isn't room on his lodgepole for half the scalps that he's taken. Bad luck to the spalpeen. He will peel the top knot from the head of a lovely woman or sweet child such as I used to be as quick as he would from the crown of a man of my size. He's an old reprobate as the same, and Soot says he can never die resigned and at pace with all mankind until he shoots him. I'll be very glad to keep out of his way if he'll keep out of mine. I wonder why he didn't kill me when he had the chance instead of keeping me so long. I suppose he meant to carry you up where his little spalpeens live and turn you over to them for their amusement. How could I amuse them? There'd be a good many ways. They might have stuck little wooden pigs in your hide, then set fire to em, and then walked you around for fireworks. Or they might fill your ears with powder and touch it off, and then watch the elegant expression of your countenance. Or they might have set you to running up and down between two rows of them, about eight or ten miles long, while each stood with a big shillelagh in his hand and banged you over the head with it as you passed. There'd be a good many ways, according to what Soot told me, but that's enough to show you that Lone Wolf and his folks wouldn't have been at a loss to find delightful ways of giving the little children the innocent sport they must have. I shouldn't think they would, if that's the kind of fun they like, replied the horrified boy. I've thanked the Lord hundreds of times that he helped me get out of Lone Wolf's clutches, and my dread is that he may catch us before we can get out of the mountain. I don't believe we could find as good a chance as I did the other night. You're right. That thing couldn't happen again. Lightning doesn't strike twice in the same place. But we've got good horses, and if he don't pin us up in the pass, I think our chance is as good as could be asked. That's what troubles me, said Fred, who was galloping at his side, and who kept continually glancing from the tops of the rocks upon the right to the tops upon the left. You know there are Indians all over, and I wonder that some of them haven't seen us already. Suppose they do, and they're behind us. They can signal to somebody ahead, and the first thing we know, they've got us shut in on both sides. That thing may happen, replied Mickey, who did not appear as apprehensive as his young friend. But I have the best of hopes that the same won't. I don't think Lone Wolf knows we're anywhere around here, and before he can find out, I also hope we shall be beyond his reach. End of chapter 13 Chapter 14 Between Two Fires Mickey had scarcely given utterance to this hopeful remark when he drew up his mustang with a spasmodic jerk and exclaimed in a startled voice, Do you see that? 
As he spoke, he pointed some distance ahead, where a faint, thin column of smoke was seen rising from the top of the rocks on the opposite side of the canyon or pass. It will be remembered that the pass of which our two friends availed themselves is the only one leading through the section of mountains which lies to the eastward of the Rio Pecos. That part over which Fred and Mickey were riding showed numerous winding trails made by the hoofs of horses as they passed back and forth, bearing Apaches, Comanches, Kiowas, and very rarely white men. At no very distant intervals were observed human skeletons and bones, while they were scarcely ever out of sight of the remains of horses or wild animals, all of which told their tale of the scenes of violence that had taken place in that highway of the mountains. Sometimes war parties of the tribes mentioned encountered each other in the gorge and passed each other in sullen silence, or perchance they dashed together like so many wild beasts fighting with the fury of a thousand Kilkenny cats. It was as the whim happened to rule the leaders. The rocks rose perpendicularly on both sides to the height of fifty and a hundred feet, the upper contour being irregular and varying in every manner imaginable. Along the upper edge of the pass grew vegetation, while here and there along the side some tree managed to obtain a precarious foothold and sprouted forth toward the sun. The floor of the canyon was of a varied nature, rocks, boulders, grass, streams of water, gravel, sand, and barren soil alternating with each other and preventing anything like an accurate description of any particular section. A survey of this curious specimen of nature's highway suggested the idea that the solid mountain had been rent for many leagues by an earthquake, which having opened this great seam or rent, had left it gradually to adjust itself to the changed order of things, and to be availed of by those who were seeking a safe and speedy transit through the almost impassable mountains. Mickey and Fred checked their mustangs and carefully scrutinized the line of smoke. It was several hundred yards in advance, on their left, while they were following a trail that led close to the right of the canyon. They could distinguish nothing at all that could give any additional information. The fire which gave rise to the vapor had been kindled just far enough back to cause the edge of the gorge to protrude itself in such a way as to shut it off from the eyes of those below. Indeed, it was not to be supposed that those who had the matter in charge would commit any oversight which would reveal themselves or their purpose to those from whom they desired to keep them. That is the same as the campfire which troubled the three Apaches so much, and which was the means of my giving them the slip. That must have been started by some other war party, so that their calculations were upset, and you had a chance to get away during the muss. It was a sort of free fight, you see, in which, instead of staying and getting your head cracked, you stepped down and left. Unable to make anything of this particular signal fire, the two friends carefully searched for more. Had they been able to discover one in the rear, they would have been assured that signaling was going on, and they would not have dared to venture forward. Here and there along the sides of the canyon were openings or crevices generally filled with some sort of vegetable growth, and into most of which quite a number of men could have taken refuge, but which of course were inaccessible to their horses. I can't find anything that resembles the same, 
said Mickey, alluding to the campfire, though there may be some one that is seen by the gentlemen who are cooking their shins by yon one. Will it do to go on? It won't do to do anything else. Like enough the spalpeen yonder has observed us coming, and he knows that there's a party behind us, and being unable to do anything himself, he starts up a fire so as to scare us and turn us back into the hands of the spalpeens coming in our rear. Mind I say that such may be the case, but I ain't sure that it is. I shouldn't wonder a bit now if that isn't it exactly, said Fred, who was quite taken with the ingenious theory of his friend. It seems to me that the best thing that we can do is to ride on as fast as we can. We've got to run the risk of it being all wrong and fetching up in the bosom of the spalpeens, but it's mighty sure we don't make anything by standing here. The Irishman turned his horse as near the middle of the canyon as possible. Fred kept close to his side, his mustang behaving so splendidly that he gave him his unreserved confidence. The average width of the pass was about a hundred yards, so it will be understood that if a detachment of men were caught within it, they would be compelled to fight at a fearful disadvantage. The plan of Mickey and Fred, as they discussed it while riding along, was to keep up the moderate gallop until close upon the fire. They would then put their animals to the highest speed and pass the dangerous point as speedily as possible. They felt no little misgiving as they drew near the dangerous place, and they continually glanced upward at the rocks overhead, expecting that a party of Indians would suddenly make their appearance and open fire. The first plan was, as they drew near, to run in as close as possible beneath the rocks on the left in the belief that, as they overhung so much, the Indians above could not reach them with a shot. But before the time came to make the attempt, it was seen that it would not do. Accordingly, Mickey, who had maintained a line as close as possible to the center of the canyon, suddenly sheared his mustang to the right until he nearly grazed the wall there. Then he put him on a dead run, Fred Munson doing the same with very little space between the two steeds. A few plunges brought them directly opposite the signal fire, and every nerve was strained. Both beasts were capable of magnificent speed, and the still air became like a hurricane as the horsemen cut their way through it. Fred glanced upward at the crest of the rocks on the left and fancied that he saw figures standing there preparing to fire. He hammered his heels against the ribs of his mustang and leaned forward upon his neck in the hope of making the aim as difficult as possible. Still, no reports of guns were heard, and after continuing the terrific gait for a quarter of a mile they gradually decreased it until it became a moderate walk and the riders again found themselves side by side. Both had looked behind them a dozen times since passing the dangerous point, but had not obtained a glimpse of an Indian. I thought I saw a number just as we were opposite, said Fred. But if so, what has become of them? You didn't observe any at all, for I kept reason me eye that way, and they weren't there. The whole thing is a mighty puzzle, as our teacher used to remark when the sum in addition became so big that he had to set down one number and carry another. The spalpeens must have manufactured that fire for our benefit, and where's the good that it has done them? Can't it be that it was for something else? Can't it be that they took us for Indians, or perhaps they haven't seen us at all and don't know that we've passed? 
it does seem as if something of the kind might be and yet that don't strike me as the injun style of doing business they continued their moderate pace for quite a distance further, continually looking back toward the campfire, the smoke of which continued to ascend with the same distinct regularity as before, but nothing resembling a warrior was detected. Finally, a curve in the gorge shut out the troublesome signal, and they were left to continue their way and conjecture as much as they chose as to the explanation of what had taken place. A little later, and when the afternoon was about half gone, they reached a portion of the pass which was remarkably straight, so that the eye took in a half-mile of it from the beginning to the point where another turn intervened. The two friends were galloping over this exact section and speculating as to how soon they would strike the open prairie, when all their calculations were knocked topsy-turvy. A party of horsemen charged around the bend in front, all riding at a sweeping gallop directly toward the alarmed Mickey and Fred, who instantly halted and surveyed them. A second glance showed them to be Indians, undoubtedly Apaches, and very probably Lone Wolf himself and some of his warriors. "'We must turn back,' said the Irishman, wheeling his horse about and striking him into a rapid gait. "'We've got to have a dead run for it, and I think we can win.' holy saints preserve us this ejaculation was caused by seeing at that moment another party of horsemen appear directly in their front as they turned on the back trail thus they were shut in on both sides and fairly caught between two fires End of chapter fourteen chapter fifteen on the defensive at the moment of reining up their mustangs, the fugitives were about equidistant between the two fires, and it was just as dangerous to advance as to retreat. For one second the Irishman meditated a desperate charge in the hope of breaking through the company that first appeared in his path, and had he been alone or accompanied by a man, he would have done so. But slight as was his own prospect of escape, he knew there was absolutely none for the boy in such a desperate effort and he determined that it should not be made. "'Can't we make a dash straight through them?' asked Fred, reading the thought of Mickey as he glanced from one to the other and noted the fearfully rapid approach of the Redskins. "'That can't be done,' replied the Irishman. "'There is only one thing left for us.' "'What is that?' "'Do as I do. Yonder is an opening that may serve us for a while.' As he spoke, he slipped off his steed, leaving him to work his own will. Fred did not hesitate a moment, for there was not a moment to spare. As he sprang to the ground, he pulled the beautiful Apache blanket from the back of the Mustang that had served him so well. Dragging that with him, the two hurried to the right, making for a wooded crevice between the rocks, which seemingly offered a chance for them to climb to the surface above, if, in the order of things, they should gain the opportunity to do so. Mickey O'Rooney, as a matter of course, took the lead, and in a twinkling he was among the gnarled and twisted saplings, the interlacing vines, and the rolling stones and rattling gravel. As soon as he had secured a foothold, he reached out his hand to help his young friend. "'Never mind me. I can keep along behind you. Go as fast as you can.' "'Let me have the blanket,' said Mickey, drawing it from his grasp. "'No, come ahead, for we have got to go it like monkeys.' 
He turned and bent to his task with the recklessness of despair, for even in that dreadful crisis he thought more of the little fellow than he did of himself. If he could have been assured of his safety, he would have been ready to wheel about and meet his score or more of foes and fight them single-handed, as Leonidas and his band did at Thermopylae. But the fate of the two was linked together, and sink or swim, it must be fulfilled in company. The narrow wooded ravine in which they had taken enforced refuge was only three or four feet in width, the bottom sloping irregularly upward at an angle of forty-five degrees. So long as this continued, so long could they maintain their laboring ascent to the top. Mickey had strong hopes that with the advantage of the start they might reach that point far enough in advance of their pursuers to secure some other concealment that would serve them until nightfall, when they could steal out and try their chances again. The saplings, growing at every inclination, afforded them much assistance, as they were able to seize hold with one or both hands, and thus help themselves along. But the vines in many places were of a peculiar running nature, and they frequently caught their feet and stumbled, but they were instantly up and at it again. All at once Mickey, who was scarcely an arm's length in advance, halted so abruptly that Fred ran plump against him. "'Why don't you go on?' asked the panting lad. "'I can't. Here's the end.' So it was indeed. While pressing upward with undiminished effort, the Irishman found himself suddenly confronted with a solid perpendicular wall of rock, the narrow chasm, or fissure, terminated. It was like a fugitive, his heart beating high with hope, checked in his flight by the obtrusion of the great Chinese wall across his path. Mickey looked upward. As he stood, he could with outstretched arms touch the wall on his right and left, and kick the one in front, the only open route being in the rear, which was commanded by the Apache party. As he did so, he saw through the interstices of the interweaving straggling branches the clear blue sky, with the edge of the fissure fully forty feet above his head. His first hope was that some of the saplings around him were lofty enough to permit him to use them as a ladder, but the tallest did not approach within a half-dozen yards of the top. They were shut in on every hand. "'We can't run any farther,' said the Irishman, after a hasty glance at the situation. "'We are cotched as fairly as ever was a mouse in a trap, and it now remains for us to pig away and go under doing the best we can.' "'Have you your pistol?' "'Yes. I picked it up again after throwing it in the face of the grizzly. But it isn't loaded.' "'Then it ain't of much account, as me mother used to say in her affectionate references to me father. But if one of the spalpeens happens to come on to you too sudden-like, you might scare him by shoving that into his eyes. I've got the powder for the same, but the bullets won't fit it, so I'll have to do the shooting. They were at bay and the Irishman was right in his declaration that they could do nothing but fight it out as best they might. The question of further flight was settled by the trap in which they were caught. They paused, expecting to hear the tramp of Indians behind them, but as it continued quiet, Mickey ventured upon a more critical inspection of their fortress, as it may be termed. He found little which has not already been mentioned, except the fact that the wall on their left sloped inward as it ascended to such a degree that the width at the top was several feet less than at the bottom. 
This was an important advantage, for in case they were attacked from above, it was in their power to place themselves beyond the immediate reach of a whole war party by any means at their command. "'Do you hear anything?' asked Mickey, bending his head to listen. They were silent a few minutes, during which the occasional tramp of a horse's hoof was noted. Beyond a doubt the entire war party of Apaches were at the mouth of the fissure, and probably a number had already entered it. "'They haven't tried to rush in pell-mell head over heels,' added Mickey, after they had stood thus a short time. "'But they are sneaking along just as they always do when they're on the track of a gentleman.' "'How soon do you think they will be here?' asked Fred, who had recovered his breath, and who began to feel something like a renewal of hope, faint though it might be, at the continued silence of their foes. "'Can't say, me laddie, but they may come any minute.' and we must keep eyes and ears open and be ready to do the last act in style. Don't you mind that we're very much in the same fix that we was when cotched in the cave, barn that we're worse off here than we were there? If someone should let a lasso down from the top, we might climb up just as we did there, but that's one of the things that ain't likely to happen. Suppose we creep back a ways to see what the Indians are doing ventured fred who was puzzled at the silence of their enemies which had now continued for some time no need o doin that just yit they'll let us know what they're at and what they mean Whisht! at that juncture the irishman detected a movement among the wood and undergrowth of the ravine and his rifle was at his shoulder like a flash fred understood or rather suspected the cause of the trouble though he saw nothing only a few seconds elapsed when the trigger was pulled the sharp crack of the weapon had scarcely broke the stillness when the shriek of a warrior was heard only a few feet away, followed by a threshing of the vines and vegetation, as the comrades of the slain brave caught and hurriedly dragged him back toward the greater ravine beyond. "'I'll teach him to be more respectful in the treatment of a gentleman,' remarked Mickey, who had recovered something of his natural recklessness and was reloading his gun with as much sang-froid as though he had just dropped an antelope and wished to be ready for another that was expected along the same path. Fred had detected the rustling movement among the shrubbery made by the redskin in stealing upon them, but he saw nothing of the savage himself and was not a little startled when his friend fired so quickly and the result was so manifest. If the victim of this rather hastily fired shot was unable to appreciate the lesson from its having a too personal application to himself, his companions appreciated it fully. It taught them that the way of pursuit was not open and undisputed by any means, and the few who were hurrying forward rather rashly were not only checked but forced backward. Matters for the moment were brought to a standstill. They'll be back again added Mickey, after reloading his piece. And as they mean to have our topknots, as the hunters see, we'll wipe out as many as we can before they get them. And now, me laddie, will ye allow me to make a suggestion? What is it? That ye keep a little more out of reach. If one of the spellpains creep up and shoot ye did, ye'll be sorry ye didn't take me advice when ye come to think the matter over coolly. Here's a sort of boulder which seems to have carried in from above. Do you squeeze in behind that? And what will you do? asked Fred, acting upon his advice. Being as there isn't room to squeeze in with ye, 
I'll take my stand a little out here, where I can secure the protection of a similar piece of masonry, and where the spalpeens can't get by me without giving the countersign and showing a pass. The lad did not specially like this arrangement, as it really retired him, but their quarters were so cramped that they had to dispose of themselves as best they could. He was obliged to feel that, practically, he was of no account as his only pistol had become useless hours before. Accordingly, he forced himself in behind the boulder pointed out, and found that his position was safe against any treacherous shot from the front. He was uneasy, however, about the open space above him, for it struck him that it would be so easy for any of their foes to roll the rocks down upon their heads. When he came to examine the situation more critically, he was not a little relieved to find that he was protected by the sloping wall already mentioned. A heavy stone heaved over the opening above might really weigh a ton and come crashing downward with terrific force, but no skill could at the start cause its course to be such as to injure the lad. He therefore concluded that his friend Mickey was not unwise in placing him in such a refuge. End of chapter 15 Chapter 16. Friend or Enemy It can scarcely be said that either of the fugitives had any definite hope of escape, for neither was able to see how the thing was possible. Mickey knew that occasionally in the affairs of the world seemingly providential interferences had occurred, but he looked for nothing of the kind. He considered that there would be a siege, lasting perhaps several days, then a desperate hand-to-hand -hand struggle, and then. The summary manner in which the Irishman disposed of the first Apache who showed himself brought matters to a standstill. In this condition, they probably would have remained but for the Irishman himself, who saw nothing to be gained by inaction. Turning his head, he whispered to Fred, "'Do you keep quiet, me laddie, until my return? I am going to take a look around.' The boy offered no objection, for he knew it would not be heeded, and Mickey moved away. It required the greatest care to pick his way down the fissure, as the stones and gravel were liable to turn under his feet and betray his approach, and it was much easier to go forward than backward. The fissure, which had afforded this temporary refuge, was about fifty feet in length, and the vegetation was so thick that at almost any portion the view was no greater than three or four yards. Mickey was in constant expectation of encountering some of the Apaches at every step he took, and in accordance with his principle of hitting a head whenever he saw it, he held his rifle so as to fire on the very instant the coppery face presented itself to view. But he saw none, and as he advanced, he began to believe that the place was entirely free of the Apaches, who— if prudent, would quietly wait on the outside until their prey dropped into their hands. It was not to be supposed that they would leave any opening on the outside by which the most forlorn chance could be obtained, and Mickey had no thought of any such thing. If he had, it would have been dissipated by the evidence of his own ears. He could hear distinctly their peculiar grunting voices, the tramp of their mustangs, and the evidence which a score of Indian warriors might be expected to give of their presence when they had no reason for concealment. 
"'It may be that the spell fiends mean to make a rush upon me,' he muttered as he halted near the end of the fissure. "'In which case I shall have a delightful employment in cracking their pates as they come up and take their turn.' He remained where he was a few minutes longer, and seeing no prospect of learning anything additional, he resumed his advance until he reached a point where it was only necessary to draw the branches slightly apart to gain a view of the main ravine, and this he proceeded to do in the gentlest and most cautious manner possible. The view was satisfactory, as it showed him that the Apaches were gathered at the entrance to the fissure, and were taking matters very coolly and philosophically. Several were on horses and a number on foot. Among the mustangs moving about, the Irishman recognized his own, astride of which was a dirty-looking Apache with a wide mouth and a broken nose. "'You old spalpeen,' muttered the indignant Irishman. "'If it wasn't for fear of spoiling your wonderful booty, I'd turn your somersets off that hoss of mine, which I shall have to whitewash after getting him back on account of your contact with the seam.' Mickey was strongly tempted to send a bullet after the tantalizing horse-thief, but he thought he could wait a while. He was extremely cautious in making his stealthy view, only moving enough leaves to permit the service of his eyes, and he had not enjoyed this prospect long before he believed that he had been detected. Of the twenty-odd members comprising the Apache party, about a dozen were constantly in view, the others being too far to the right or left to be seen. The group was an irregular and straggling one, the most interesting portion being five or six who stood close together exactly at the base of the fissure, talking with each other. It was impossible that there should be more than one subject of discussion, and the dispute, as Mickey suspected, was as to the precise method of disposing of the job which had been placed in their hands. Some evidently favored a daring charge directly up the narrow ravine with its short, fierce encounter and sure victory. Others had a different plan, and their gestures led the eavesdropper to suspect that they advocated reaching them from the roof, while it was apparent that there were those who insisted upon waiting until the fruit should become ripe enough to fall into their laps without shaking. There could be little doubt that the Apaches preferred to take both prisoners instead of shooting or tomahawking them in a fight. They were under the inspiration of Lone Wolf, who believed that a live man was much more valuable than a dead one. While Mickey was watching this group with an interest which may be imagined, he noticed that a short, thick, greasy, filthy warrior was looking directly towards him with a steadiness which caused the Irishman to suspect that his presence was known. The Indian, like all of them, was as homely as he could be. He, too, had gone through an attack of smallpox which had left his broad face so deeply pitted that it could be noticed through the vari-colored paint which was daubed thereon. There was scarcely any forehead. The black, piercing eyes were far apart, and when Mickey saw them turn toward him, he felt anything but comfortable under their fire. "'I wonder whether he would keep mum if I should tip him the wink,' thought Mickey, who suffered the leaves in front of his face to close, until there was just the smallest space through which he could watch his man. The latter acted very much as if he suspected the proximity of the Irishman, even if he was not 
assured of it, he continued looking directly at the point where the eyes of the white man peered out upon him, and by and by he raised his arm and pointed in the same direction, saying something at the same time to a couple of the warriors near him. "'Be the powers if that doesn't mean me,' as my friend Larry O'Toole said when the judge axed for the biggest rascal in court. "'I'll have to retire.' At this juncture, a strange occurrence took place. Mickey O'Rooney was looking straight at the man when he saw him fling up his arms, yell, and pitch forward to the ground while the group instantly scattered as if a bombshell had dropped at their feet. Just a second previous to this strange death, Mickey heard the report of a rifle, showing that the warrior had been shot by someone at quite a distance from the spot which shot at the same time caused a temporary panic among the others. "'Well, well, now, if that doesn't bait everything,' exclaimed the amazed Irishman. "'Just as I was thinking of raising my gun to give that spalpeen his walking papers, up steps some gentleman and sees me the trouble. But who was the gentleman, is the question?' The inexplicable occurrence naturally recalled Fred Munson's adventure with the grizzly bear. When he needed assistance most sorely, the shot was fired that saved his life. Could it be that the same party had interfered in the present instance? There was plenty of ground for speculation, and the Irishman was disposed to believe that the diversion came from some small party of Kiowas or Comanches who had a special enmity against this company of Apaches, and who, being too weak to attack them, took this means of revenging themselves. It was unsafe, however, to count upon the well-aimed shot as meant in the interest of the whites, although the one that brought down the grizzly bear could not have been meant for anything else than a direct help to the imperiled lad. The Southwest has been noted for what are termed triangular fights. A party of Americans have been driven at bay by an overwhelming number of Mexicans or greasers who have suddenly found themselves attacked by a party of howling Comanches. The latter have scattered the Mexicans like chaff, the Americans acting the part of spectators until the rout was complete when the Comanches turned about and sailed into the Americans. The Kiowas, Comanches, Apaches, Mexicans, and Americans afforded just the elements for a complication of guerrilla warfare in which matters frequently became mixed to a wonderful degree. The hand that had fired this shot against a mortal foe of Mickey O'Rooney might be turned against him in the next hour. Who could tell? If that gentleman begins the serenade from the other side, it's me bound in duty to cape it up from this, concluded the Irishman, as he cocked his rifle and awaited his chance. It was not long in coming. Only a few minutes had passed after the shot when a couple of Apaches walked rapidly into view, and approaching the remains of their comrade, stooped down to carry him away. Mickey allowed them to get fairly started when he blazed away at the foremost and had the satisfaction of seeing the rear Apache not only deprived of his assistance, but his duty suddenly doubled. The warrior, however, stuck pluckily to the work and dragged both out of view without any assistance from those who were ready to rush to his help. 
These two, or rather three, rifle shots produced the strongest kind of effect upon the Apaches. They could not well fail to do so, for they were not only fired with unerring aim, but they came from such diverse points as to show the redskins that instead of having their enemies cooped up in this narrow ravine, they had in one sense placed themselves between two fires. Hurriedly reloading his rifle, Mickey waited several minutes, determined to fire the instant he got the chance, with the purpose of enhancing the demoralization of the wretches. But they had received enough to teach them caution, and as the minutes passed, they failed to expose themselves. They had taken to shelter somewhere, and were not yet ready to uncover. When Mickey had waited a considerable time, he concluded to rejoin Fred Munson, who no doubt was anxious over the result of his reconnaissance. When he returned, he found him seated upon the boulder instead of behind it. The Irishman hastily explained what had taken place and added, I don't know what they will do next, but we've give the spalpeens a dose that will keep them in the background for a while. No, it won't either, was the significant response. What do you mean, my laddie? I mean that the Apaches, or some of them anyway, have changed their base. I've heard something overhead that makes me sure they're up there getting up to some kind of deviltry. End of chapter 16